Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this episode of Word, it's Halloween, and we'll take a deep dive into the franchise, which has been responsible for many costume choices. Oh yeah, and huge box office returns as well. What we should be doing is starting our own studio. We still have the rights to a lot of these characters, like Iron Man, Captain America, Thor. Plus, NPR's Morning Edition co-host Steve Inskeep has a new biography about President Abraham Lincoln, which explores his attempts to maintain union in a deeply divided country. You want me to think of Lincoln as the guy who reached out to the other side? He went to war against the other part of the country. And this is absolutely true. But here's what I mean by that. Lincoln built coalitions. But first, what would Halloween be without a little magic? As in Irvin Magic Johnson. The Los Angeles Lakers all-star is the subject of a new biography by Roland Lazenby. It's simply titled Magic. Lazenby has written many books about basketball, including a definitive biography of Michael Jordan. But what launched his career writing about the sport? I was a high school coach, a varsity head coach at age 24, and I was diagnosed with a brain aneurysm, and it made me realize I dabbled in writing a little bit, but I wanted to be a writer. Why waste my time, you know? Uh, Yeah. And so, uh, fortunately, I did not have an aneurysm, but I did set out to work on being a writer. My father would later die. He was a huge basketball fan. I enjoyed football more. I played a lot of pickup basketball. I even played a year of college football. But he died in 1981, and I really began playing pickup basketball. And then I started writing basketball books. And it was really all about my relationship with him, I guess. I really didn't start to understand that until I wrote Michael Jordan, The Life, which dealt a lot with... Michael Jordan's relationship with his father. You know, it's just funny how these universal things emerge in the biographies of these major figures. I played numerous games of pickup basketball when I was a kid, particularly in the 80s when Magic was super popular, and he was my favorite player. I grew up and lived a long time in Indiana, played a lot of basketball with my dad, and, you know, that was a bonding kind of a thing for us. I never was... Well, I guess I never considered myself good enough to try out for the official team from my middle school or high school, but I was pretty decent. I think I just liked the pickup atmosphere. But being from Indiana, you know, I got a lot of gruff from people because, of course, Larry Bird came from Indiana. And they were like, well, why aren't you a Celtics fan? (laughs) But why did you want to write a biography about magic? My first NBA project was a thing called the Celtics Green Book that I I did with the Celtics for five years, every year. And I was fascinated by bird and magic. And I later did a project with the Lakers along a similar line. And I wasn't alone. Uh, You know, pro basketball was in terrible shape. Teams were losing money. Fan interest had declined. The ratings for the 1978-79 season, the regular season TV ratings had fallen like 25%. Oh, wow. 
and Larian Magic come into the league, and they brought with them this massive TV audience that saw them play against each other in the 1979 NCAA championship. It started something. The fans were so hungry for this competition that it, it really gave a jolt of life to the dowdy sport of American pro basketball. This book is, of course, about many things, including that fantastic rivalry between the Lakers and the Celtics, but I think also the mutual respect between Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Magic's career was cut short, and I remember exactly where I was in 1991 with the press conference, and he did shock the world. He certainly shocked me because I was monitoring the press conference for a radio station at the time when it was announced. Do you remember where you were? That, you know, the announcement that he had HIV? Yes, I was in my living room in Roanoke, Virginia. And it really, like everyone else, it knocked me for a loop. The one family that probably got hit the hardest was the family of Joe Jellybean Bryant. They were in Europe where Jellybean had played eight years in the NBA and then had played eight years in Italy. And he was getting ready to start a new season. And he had this son named Kobe, who was 12 (laughs) years old, who idolized Magic Johnson. And Kobe told me he was so distraught. Kobe, in talking about being 12 years old and getting the news about Magic, he was inconsolable. And the Bryants immediately packed up their lives in Europe. A god in their world had fallen from the sky. And they came back to Philadelphia, where the family was from originally, and they were just overwhelmed by the circumstances of magic having HIV, as were many people. Of course, because at that point in time, it was considered a death sentence. You never really saw him get down. In fact, he reformulated his life and became this amazing business person. And you talk about that as an amazing coda to his basketball career in this book. Roland, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word. The new book is called Magic, The Life of Irvin Magic Johnson. Thank you so much, Roland, for your time. Tom, thank you for this lovely visit. You can find out a bit more about Roland Lazenby on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, we'll take a deep dive into the franchise, which has been responsible for many costume choices and huge box office returns. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. So what do you want to do this weekend? Maybe get some help from KJZZ's Hotspots. It's a weekly text with some of the best ideas for what to do this weekend, curated by KJZZ. Whether you're an introvert, an extrovert, or feeling a bit wild, we've got you covered. So sign up at hotspots.kjzz.org. Do you know a talented young musician between the ages of 7 and 13? Nominate them now to be a recipient of Classical Next. Classical Next will showcase our community's most talented and fascinating young musicians. Read our guidelines and nominate your student at kbach.org.
Football season is here, and that means tailgating time. If your tailgate doesn't function like it used to, consider donating that SUV or pickup to the KJZZ Vehicle Donation Program and support the programs you love. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Gavin Edwards is one of three authors who have released a new chronicle of how Marvel Studios conquered Hollywood. When I caught up with Edwards recently, we started by talking about his writing career in general. I've been a uh, professional writer for a few decades now. Uh, these days, uh, I mostly write for uh, the New York Times, where I do a lot of obituaries. I write a lot of pop culture stuff. I've done a dozen uh, cover stories for Rolling Stone. And I've written uh, 14 books, of which the newest is MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios. I'm very curious about this obit thing because I've heard from numerous people that's one of the desks that you want to work for. Was that the case for you? I love writing obituaries. Um, and this may sound a little odd, but it feels like deeply moral to me um, that often if I'm writing a magazine article, you know, sort of like, hey, I'm in a room with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'm going to let you know what that feels like. Sort of like, here is, I am as your representative, as a fly on the wall. But when you're writing an obituary, there's this sense that you want to like sum up every, somebody's life and get right what did they do with their time on planet Earth. And I love that challenge. Let's talk about your way into this chronicle of MCU, the reign of Marvel Studios. Why the collaborative approach with multiple authors in this book? Joanna and Dave started it a few years uh, before I came on, and that's Joanna Robinson and Dave Gonzalez, my co-authors. And uh, they had a mountain of research. The way our responsibilities ended up dividing up is uh, Joanna did lots and lots of interviews, over 100 of them, and uh, Dave did tons of deep research. And then at a certain point, they had a big pile of material, but they were having trouble uh, crafting it into like paragraphs and chapter form, at which point they gave me a call. They said, well, writing books is hard, but Gavin has written many books. <laughs> and then I came in and it was just really, it was wonderful for me, both because they had so much great material and because often writing a book is the process of quietly going insane in a room by yourself. And in this case, like, hey, <laughs> smart people to get on a Zoom call with. This is like actually much more fun than doing it by myself. You alluded to something that I just had a conversation about. That was the length of movies, for instance, and the need, it seems, for some directors to get an editor because I don't want to sit in a theater for two and a half hours or whatever. Right. And so I'm assuming that that was part and parcel of why they brought you in as well. I mean, one of my superpowers is I can take any piece of writing and make it shorter. And so there was a lot of like give and take where, say, uh, I would be reading their notes and uh, there would be a reference in passing, say, to James Cameron almost directed a Spider-Man movie. And I'd email uh, Dave and say, that seems fascinating. Can you send me material on that? And I'd get like eight paragraphs from him. And then I'd sort of like whatever parts I was most interested in, I figure readers are most interested in as well. And so that ends up becoming a relatively concise, maybe three or four paragraphs. Well, it's also important to understand that this is what's billed as an unauthorized story. And what were the challenges in compiling that? And why was it difficult to not get authorization for some of these things? Disney, as a corporation, uh, likes to tell its own story. And in fact, uh, as uh, Joanna and Dave started working on the book, uh, they were originally told, hey, this isn't going to be authorized by us, but we're not going to stand in your way. Go ahead and do what you want to do. And that lasted a few months. And then they started finding out that you know they would call people up and their representatives would say, 
ooh, let us just check on this. And then they get the word, sorry, we're being told not to talk to you. So the good news is that they already had a lot of material in the can, including uh, Joanna sat down with Kevin Feige, who runs uh, Marvel Studios and is like the driving force behind it. And she's had a couple of hours of time with him. And there are people who are just sort of like, the off the reservation and willing to say like where the bodies were buried. She got uh, a lot of access to people in the early days of uh, the pandemic. There were all these people who might've not been available otherwise, but they were home by themselves. They were bored. They wanted somebody to talk to. And uh, you know, like here's Joanna on the phone. So uh, she ended up getting a lot of material that way. Marvel was a waning toy maker, not even 20 years ago. When did their climb to becoming a dominant studio really begin? Marvel like uh, was in and out of bankruptcy uh, for a couple of years, and uh, Ike Perlmutter around uh, 2004 uh, runs a division of Marvel uh, called Toy Biz, um, and uh, he somehow like engineers a deal where rather than getting like the whole Marvel Enterprises sold off for uh, spare parts, uh, he says let Toy Biz absorb it and so the smaller division took over the whole enterprise um, and then their uh, uh, deal for a while was their approach to making movies is we have these very popular characters we'll license them out like Spider-Man and X-Men and we'll get sort of a small fee from that but we'll also uh, make more uh, money on toys because we'll be able to sell more Spider-Man and X-Men toys Around 2006, this guy, David Maisel, has uh, lunch with Ike Perlmutter, and Maisel successfully pitches him on saying, you're leaving all this money on the table. What we should be doing is starting our own studio. We still have the rights to a lot of these characters, like Iron Man, Captain America, Thor. And if we do that, uh, then you'll not only have the toys that come out of it, but all the money will be coming directly to the bottom line. The key was that Ike Perlmutter did not want to spend like a dime to make this happen so <laughs> well what, it, what, so what is sell, it that they say right is that you know if yeah. you're going to go into business don't put your own money into it exactly it doesn't want to uh, do it so what they have to do is they mortgage about 10 of the characters and merrill lynch ponies up a 500 million dollar line of credit and if they're not able to pay it back then uh, merrill lynch will have the rights to these characters in perpetuity but if the movies are successful, then they'll pay off the loans and uh, like off they go. And they're successful right out of the gate with uh, Iron Man. And so immediately they pay off uh, Merrill Lynch. And then a few years later, Disney acquires them. But you also write hiring Robert Downey Jr. for the debut. And what it was in 2008 was contentious because of his past Hollywood troubles, right? The Hollywood bad boy. Sure. I mean, uh, he had uh, had like well-publicized uh, substance abuse problems. Uh, you may recall he broke into a neighbor's house and fell asleep in their kid's bedroom. So they were very worried that this is a guy who's not going to be a good representative of the studio and maybe he's going to go off the rails again. Uh, but the good news is that the, the character of Tony Stark is a guy, in the comics at least, who has substance abuse problems of his own and has sort of had some hard knocks in his life. And so it is the perfect visual shorthand that Robert Downey Jr., like you see him on screen, you're like, oh, it's that guy. I get it. He's glib and he's charming, but he's like been through some hard times. So John Favreau, the director, fought very, very hard for him and uh, had him do a screen test uh, where he exhibited, you know, sort of like all of his uh, native charm. And even then, when the East Coast leadership of uh, Marvel Entertainment was resisting, he leaked the news to some of the Hollywood trade magazines. And then when there was like a big public outcry, yes, this is what we want. Only then was Downey approved. 
Disney does not get into business unless it thinks it can make a fortune. And when they bought this franchise, I mean, clearly it has been extremely popular. Last question I have for you is, in the near future, do you see that continuing? And uh, I guess the secondary part of that question is, are audiences beginning to sour on the offerings? I mean, it used to be a time when, let's say you had 16 screens, and there would be four of them that were showing the same Marvel movie. Or the weekend of the Avengers Endgame comes out, 15 of the 16 are showing the same movie. Part of the initial genius was the sense that because of the interconnectivity of all of these movies, they built something that just didn't exist before, where, you know, like I'd say 32 movies now, and the sense that every movie is a sequel to every other movie. And so once you're in, like, okay, I want to go see what happens next. But 15 years down the road, that's also a bit of an obstacle. Like if you're the one just like sort of go be entertained on a Friday night, gee, do I have to watch five movies to get ready to see (laughs) this one that I want to see? Like it feels a little bit like homework. So I wouldn't count them out. They're run by smart people, but they're definitely having like a bit of a wobble right now as they figure out how do you bring in sort of new generations that aren't necessarily on board from the beginning. MCU, the reign of Marvel Studios, is the latest from Joanna Robinson, Dave Gonzalez, and Gavin Edwards. Gavin, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. Tom, it's been a pleasure. You can find out a bit more about Gavin Edwards on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, NPR's Morning Edition co-host Steve Inskeep has a new biography about President Abraham Lincoln. It explores Lincoln's attempts to maintain union in a deeply divided country. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. In an era of behavioral health challenges, including addiction, there's a need for informed, compassionate providers. Rio Salado College is offering full scholarships in behavioral health programs. More information at riosalado.edu slash better tomorrow. Looking for a new podcast? KJZZ has original podcasts on all sorts of topics, like the new series called Period The End. It's a series about a chapter of life that can be gut-wrenching, exhausting, and confusing. It's about menopause, and half the nation will go through it. You can download great storytelling at podcasts.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know two out of every three NPR listeners prefer to purchase products and services from public radio sponsors? You can see the benefits of becoming a KJZZ corporate sponsor at sponsor.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxinon. Our final guest on this episode is NPR's Morning Edition co-host Steve Inskeep. Recently, Inskeep released an interesting biography about President Abraham Lincoln. It's called Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. When I sat down with Steve recently to talk about the book, I asked him firstly, why a book about Lincoln now? I have always been interested in history. I've loved reading it as a kid. I have a memory of my grandparents taking me in their RV to look at the Gettysburg battlefield. We drove from Indiana across to Gettysburg. I've always loved history. I've been writing history now for a number of years. This is my third work on American history, specifically on the 19th century. And as a journalist, I'm covering the first draft of history, as they say. I'm covering history as it happens. And I'm often walking around at the Capitol or the White House or other buildings that even existed 150 years ago. And so I get to go back into the past and find some of our 
predecessors, or in some cases our ancestors, dealing with many of the same situations on the same ground and even in the same buildings. And so it's just a, it's a cool thing to do. The title, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America, was taken from a letter that Lincoln wrote to his best friend, who was a Kentucky slave owner. And I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about that friendship, but also the content of that particular correspondence. Yeah, I think it gets to the essence of the book, which is Lincoln's face-to-face meetings with people who disagreed with him, who differed with him, including many who disagreed with him about slavery, who thought that he was not radical enough or that he was far too radical, or they were just totally on the other side. Joshua Speed was the best friend of Lincoln's life. He'd been born in Kentucky, just as Lincoln was. But unlike Lincoln, who grew up very poor, he'd grown up in a very wealthy family, and Joshua's father owned by the time of his death, I believe, about 57 enslaved people who worked a hemp farm outside Louisville, Kentucky. And that was Joshua Speed's upbringing. Now, when both men were living in the free state of Illinois, they became best friends, Speed and Lincoln. And by the 1850s, when slavery was the central crisis, the central issue facing the country, Lincoln wrote his friend a letter. And it's clear they disagree about slavery. Speed agrees in the abstract that slavery is bad, but in Lincoln's opinion is not serious about this, is not politically serious about voting in a way that would change anything. And so Lincoln tells him he's wrong. But then he says, if for this you and I must differ, differ we must. Effectively saying philosophically, okay, I get that we're going to disagree about this. But then he signs the letter, your friend forever. And the important coda to that little story, in my view, is that Lincoln kept touch with this guy he disagreed with, didn't shun or ostracize the guy. And when the Civil War came and Lincoln was president, he got some use out of him. Joshua Speed remained loyal to the Union and helped keep the slave state of Kentucky in the Union in the early months of the war. I think it's such a great way that you've positioned this book and all of the disagreements that you talk about. Lincoln disagreed with many fellow politicians, his own advisors, generals even, and you examine some of those disagreements in 16 particular incidents. How did you make your choices? Thank you. Uh, it was hard. And in fact, there are entire chapters that I wrote that I cut out of the book. There are two or three chapters at least that are gone because I wanted to shave this down to specific encounters that told me something about Lincoln and told me something about his life. And also by narrowing the focus, I felt that I was able to expose things that were new or at least not very commonly known. Some of the characters in here are very famous. Some of them are extremely obscure, but there's enough information about their meeting with Lincoln and how they differed in background or in opinion or just total disagreement. And so I picked one from each phase of his, his adult life. I also tried to get a diversity of people. One of my notions was that I could explore and illuminate the diversity of America in this period where white men uh, made virtually all the decisions. Right. But it was a diverse country then, just as it is now. So I wanted to hear from other people. And so there are several people of color among the 16. There are several women among the 16. Even among the white men, there are people from very upper-class backgrounds, lower-class backgrounds, different parts of the country, different perspectives, men who are in favor of slavery, men who are radically against slavery. And so I hope in the course of the book, you get a feel for America then and almost by reflection now. Right, because at the same time, his engagement did not prevent secession in a bloody civil war, but you think that there's lessons that can be drawn from his just desire to engage. 
Yeah, and this is a distinction that I'm glad you asked about. It gives me an opportunity to talk about it. There's kind of a social media reaction to this book, which is totally understandable, and maybe somebody listening is having it. You want me to think of Lincoln as the guy who reached out to the other side? He went to war against the other part of the country. And this is absolutely true. But here's what I mean by that. Lincoln built coalitions. His goal was not to persuade everybody, because that's not possible. His goal was not necessarily even to change a lot of people's minds, but he wanted to find people who had enough to agree on that they could form a political majority. He worked before the Civil War and before his election as president to help build an anti-slavery coalition, which was really hard because there was a lot of racism in this country and a lot of mixed opinions about slavery, even among people who thought it was generally wrong. And it was an overwhelmingly white male electorate. He helped to build an anti-slavery coalition. And then when war came, he was not your guy who would say, I favor peace at any price. He was a guy who was not going to yield to the demands of the South that did not accept his free and fair election as president of the United States. But he built a large coalition to keep the rest of the Union together. And that coalition was, again, a majority. It outnumbered the other side. And that majority formed a numerical advantage on the battlefield, which is why the Union won the Civil War. So he's not a can't-we-all-get-along guy. He's shrewder and edgier than that. But he's working all the time in this book to try to bring people together for a common cause. NPR's Steve Inskeep is author of Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America, which is out now. You hear most frequently as part of Morning Edition from 5 to 9 a.m. weekdays here on KJZZ. Steve, just from one former Hoosier to another, thanks for this exhaustively researched book, and thanks so much wow. for talking to us a bit. Wow, but you're never a former. <laughs> Once a Hoosier, always. Exactly. It's like they say about the Marines. There's no such thing as a former Marine. Thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate your time. I'm glad to do it. Thank you. You can find out a bit more about NPR's Morning Edition co-host, Steve Inskeep, on our website, word.kjzz.org. You can also listen to Morning Edition with Steve and KJZZ's Phil Lantzman weekday mornings from 5 to 9 at kjzz.org, the free KJZZ mobile app, or 91.5 FM. We're back with another episode of Word on November 14th. In the meantime, you can follow Word on KJZZ's social media, and don't forget to enter our literary-themed Halloween costume contest with prizes in both kids' and adults' categories. Episodes are available on multiple platforms, including the NPR pod feed and now YouTube. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening to Word. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.